Welcome to the Creekside Community Church Podcast. If you don't yet follow Jesus, we want to provide you with a safe place to explore the Christian faith. If you are a Christian, we want to provide you with resources to help you grow in your faith and ultimately serve Jesus more effectively. For more information or to partner with us, visit our website at creekside.cc. Subscribe so that you don't miss any of our messages. We hope this content helps you take your next step with Jesus. Uh, well, I want to invite uh, all our kiddos to come forward, and uh, just last year we did something on Father's Day that I think is a great, honoring, very serious tradition, which is to share some dad jokes, right? because it's Father's Day, and uh, many fathers, uh, not me, but many other fathers like dad jokes. Just kidding. I love dad jokes. I love corny jokes. First of all, do you guys know what I mean by dad jokes? What do I mean by dad jokes? Like not really good jokes? Is that what you said? <laughs> oh, oh, really good jokes. Really good jokes. Sorry, I misunderstood. Okay, yeah. Yeah, they're usually kind of corny or punny, right? Kind of silly. So I have some dad jokes. Like, so one of my favorites I heard recently is, why did the bicycle fall over? Ada knows because she heard this joke. You want to say it? You can say it. Because it was too tired. Oh, you guys get it? All right, I love it. Do you guys know any dad jokes off the top of your head? Do you want to share one? Yeah? Oh, the baby corn said to mama corn, where's popcorn? I like it. Any other ones? Yeah. What? Yeah, tell me. Oh, so the joke is Superman had to change his name and title because it was already taken by dad, right? So now Superman is okay, man. <laughs> I love it. Uh, today, actually, in the message, we're going to be talking about fear. So I tried to find some dad jokes that related to fear or being scared. Um, so this one sort of relates to, like, maybe you should be more scared of trees. So the joke is you shouldn't trust trees. Do you know why? Because they can be kind of shady. Okay. <laughs> I love the groans. All right. Uh, I used to have a fear of speed bumps, but I'm slowly getting over it. <laughs> All right. Just two more for you, and then I'll stop torturing you. Um, one person said, I want to know what the fear of question marks is called. And they're like, there are different fears called phobia. So arachnophobia is the fear of spiders, right? So this person said, I want to know what the fear of questions mark is called but I'm afraid to ask. Yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, last one, and this is especially for us dads. All right. Uh, someone just said, my worst fear is being trapped in an elevator with a man who is confident he can fix it. Ooh, ouch. All right. Thank you, kids, for your help today. Uh, be sure to tell your dads happy Father's Day, and uh, thank you for your help. <laughs>
It's okay. You don't have to applause for those jokes. You can applaud for the kids, but not necessarily those jokes. Uh, we are talking about faith and fear today and how those things go together and don't as we continue to explore the gospel of Luke. So as we've been doing for the last uh, month or so, we're just going to keep working our way through the gospel of Luke. And every um, the passage we're looking about at today has several different stories in it, and it's interesting because every one of the, the people in the, each of these stories or the groups of people um, experience fear, and struggle with faith. And so it brings up these dynamics of fear and faith, and how do these things go together? And uh, if you're like me, you've seen a number of those uh, bumper stickers that says, like, faith over fear. And while I really appreciate what they're expressing and getting at, and I think there's a truth to it, um, my problem is that that kind of seems to suggest that faith and fear are opposites. And I don't think that's actually true. I think you're going to see actually in the different passages we look today that actually in some ways they go together. Um, and this is just true even biblically speaking. Uh, Proverbs 1.7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. If that's true, then having faith in God, trusting God, is not the opposite of fear because there's a fear of the Lord that should actually be an intrinsic part of faith. These actually can't be opposites. I love what uh, John Orberg said. He said, faith is not the absence of fear, but the presence of trust. So having trust and fear may be a better definition instead of trust instead of fear. But we're going to look at these dynamics of faith and fear, and I I think it's going to be helpful for all of us today, um, whether you consider yourself a follower of Jesus or you're exploring all of this and you have lots of of questions. And the point, I'm just going to give it to you up front today because we're going to see it again play out in every single one of these stories. Um, The point is this, that healthy fear of God is actually a key component of a healthy faith in God, a healthy fear of God. Now, as we're going to see in these stories, that word healthy is pretty important, There's a bad version of fear of God, and there's a bad version of faith as well. But we want to have a healthy fear of God that is a key component of a healthy faith or trust in God. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and um, open it up to Luke chapter 8. That's where we're going to be today, Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 22, and we're going to work our way through this together. If you don't have your Bible, it's totally fine. We'll put it on the screen, and all these passages will be up there. And let's look at these dynamics of fear and faith and how they go together. So here's how it begins. It says, one day Jesus and his disciples got into a boat and he told them, let's cross over to the other side of the lake. Now, when he says, let's cross over to the other side of the lake, um, that's something that we usually miss out on. But again, they're on the Sea of Galilee. And right now, when the story is starting, they're on the Jewish side. And to cross over the other side, some of us who got to go to Israel this year, not, you know this, right? Uh, that's like the equivalent in our culture of like, go to the other side of the tracks. Um, it's not just a geographic location, it's a cultural location. The other side of the lake is where the Gentiles are, the non-Jews. So when Jesus says, let's go over to the other side of the lake, they're like, okay, we're going to go into non-Jewish territory, Gentile territory. And so they set out. And as they were sailing, Jesus fell asleep. Then a fierce windstorm came down on the lake. They were being swamped, and they were in danger. So what are they feeling? Fear. They came and woke Jesus up, saying, Master, Master, we're going to die. (laughs) Then he got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waves. And so they ceased, and there was a calm 
And he said to the disciples, where is your faith? Where is your trust? They were fearful and amazed. It's interesting. They were scared of the storm. Jesus calms the storm. And now they're still scared. But their fear is different, isn't it? They were fearful and amazed now about Jesus. Who is this guy in this boat with us? They kept asking one another, saying, who then is this? Who is this? He commands even the winds and the waves, and they obey him. To understand uh, the depth of their fear and the the feelings they're experiencing, um, first of all, you have to remember that the Old Testament background and, and the Old Testament cultural thinking is that the sea and waters are this violent place of death. They're so powerful that there's something to be feared and only God can rule over the seas. So like, for example, Psalm uh, 89, 8 through 9 says this, Lord, God of armies, right? The Lord, the commander of God's armies, who is strong like you, Lord? Your faithfulness surrounds you. You rule the raging sea. When its waves surge, you still them. If you've grown up reading scriptures like this and singing scriptures like this, and then you're in the boat with this famous rabbi teacher, and he stills the seas. Wow, who is this? And this whole passage is getting at, who, who is this? Who is this guy that we're following around and, and seeing doing these miracles? Only the Lord has the power to rule the seas. So who is this? And the suggestion is that somehow Jesus, this man, is also the Lord. Now, again, fear is a natural response to great power. Um, I was just thinking about how we experience this, and this is not really even a bad thing. Like, imagine how you feel if you've ever been at the very brink of a huge waterfall. You see these vast amounts of water just pouring over the edge. Or how many of you have been to the Grand Canyon, right? And you look out at this, this huge canyon, right? And it's, it's so vast, and it's so deep, and you kind of experience that smallness. You know what I'm talking about? where you realize, wow, I'm tiny, and this place is huge. Or if you've ever been stuck in a terrible storm, probably somewhat recently for some of you, right, where the, the, the wind is raging or the thunder's clapping right around you, and you feel so small and powerless in those moments. It's natural when you're faced with something that's extremely powerful to feel small and to be humbled by it. And that's what the disciples are experiencing in the storm, very natural. And then Jesus calms the storm, and they realize, whoever this guy is, he is way more powerful than what we were just experiencing. And the natural response is fear of him now, but not an unhealthy, like, quavering fear, like, oh, what's Jesus going to do to me? It's actually a deep respect for he is so powerful Uh, Tim Keller said it like this. He says, the fear of the Lord is not about being scared of God, but rather having a deep reverence and awe for his greatness, goodness, and holiness. It is actually the foundation of a healthy and vibrant relationship with him. A number of years ago, uh, and I've shared this story before, so sorry if you've already heard it, but a number of years ago, I was going on just kind of a, a solo retreat. I was getting away by myself and the purpose was to just have some time with me and God. And so I went up to the mountains um, up near Devil's Head area, which is an ironic place to spend seeking God. But anyway, uh, I was up in the Devil's Head area camping by myself, and, um, and I didn't have a great attitude going into it. 
I was kind of very self-centered going into it. I was like, oh, this is kind of, this is my me time. And I was like, oh, what do I want to do during this time? And I spent some time reading this book that I wanted to read. And then later that afternoon while I was there, um, this huge storm rolls in. And there's thunder and lightning and rain. And the uh, lightning starts hitting the hills right around where I am. And I wasn't in physical danger, really. I knew that in my mind <laughs> because I was surrounded by trees and there was taller peaks than where I was at. But it was so loud and so close. I don't know if I actually could, but I felt like I could feel the ground shaking uh, when the lightning was striking. And it was almost hurting my ears because it was so loud. It was right there and right there, right there, right there, right there. Um, and it was this deeply humbling experience. And for me, and I don't feel like I hear God's voice all the time or something like that, but I felt God calling out my attitude of kind of putting me in my place, as it were, right? Um, because again, I had kind of been me-focused. He's like, you're coming out here to spend time with me, Luke. Like, who am I and who are you? <laughs> And I got the message loud and clear, and I was very humbled. And, um, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's good to realize who it is we pray to and who it is we're worshiping and how great and powerful he is. And so what I was trying to get at with this application point is that what we see happening in this story is that Jesus is more powerful than this storm that's threatening their life, right? They're afraid. They're freaking out. And then Jesus calms the storm. And part of the point seems to be like, that is how powerful Jesus is. That is how powerful God is. And so it's not that we're not supposed to have fears. It's just that oftentimes we're afraid of the wrong things. We're afraid of small things in life that to God are not a big deal at all. And so it's almost like we need to trade out our little fears for a greater one of the fear of the Lord. And so I think it's true that the more you understand God's great power, actually that should cause you to trust him more because you realize that he's more powerful than whatever that thing is that you're facing or scared of or worried about. You know that he's greater. Experiencing God's great power not only puts us in our place, but it has the power, I think, to put our problems in their rightful place. That's why I say again, the healthy fear of God is actually a key component of a healthy faith in God. They're not opposed to each other. Now, that said, simply knowing that he's super powerful is not quite enough. And that's what we're going to see in the very next story. So uh, let's pick things up in verse 26. Okay? So they're going to the other side. Now they're at the other side. They're in Gentile territory. Then they sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is opposite of Galilee. When he got out on land, a demon-possessed man from the town met him. For a long time, he had worn no clothes, did not stay in a house, but in the tombs. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him and said in a loud voice, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torment me. For Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was guarded, bound by chains and shackles, he would snap the restraints and be driven by the demon into deserted places. What is your name, Jesus asked him. Legion, he said, because many demons had entered him, and they begged him not to banish them 
to the abyss. Now, I'm going to be honest, this, this story raises a lot of questions and doesn't answer them. Uh, but I want to emphasize what the key ideas are going on in this story. Um, and to know that, you need to know that legion means 6,000 soldiers. A legion of Roman soldiers is 6,000. And just a chapter ago, we read how Jesus had previously cast seven demons out of Mary Magdalene, which was remarkable. Like, it was amazing that she had that many demons and that he was able to cast out that many demons. And so part of the point of the story is to say, look, who is this? Who is this man who not only has power over seas and storms, but also over the spiritual world? And who can even cast out 6,000 demons? That's who this guy is. That's how powerful he is. And also how problematic these demons were. So a large herd of pigs were there, was there, right? Obviously Gentile territory. You wouldn't have a bunch of pigs in Jewish territory. Large herd of pigs was there feeding on the hillside, and the demons begged Jesus to permit them to enter the pigs, and he gave them permission. The demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. So what's going on? These demons are so like crazy causing and so powerful that they cause this huge herd of pigs to drown. And again, the point seems to be emphasizing the fact that like this poor guy who had so many demons that all of them would go into this herd of pigs and cause them to drown themselves. Like all of those demons were in this guy. Like he must have been just going crazy, right? Um, to be possessed by so many demons. When the men who tended the perg Pigs saw what had happened. They ran off and reported it in the town and in the countryside. And then people went out to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and they found the man that the demons had departed from, right? the man that they had previously bound with chains and guarded and who had escaped the chains and run out to the wilderness. That same man, they saw him sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. And they were... They were afraid. Now, here's what's going to be interesting. We're going to see. Do they have fear of Jesus because of his great power? Yes, but it's not enough. Meanwhile, the eyewitnesses reported to them how the demon-possessed man was delivered, like that, that it was Jesus who did it. And then all the people of the Gerasene religion turned to Jesus. No, sorry, I shouldn't. Um, but I'm drawing out the weirdness of this, right? This, they've seen or heard about this great miracle. There were eyewitnesses to it that told them what had happened and who did it, that it's Jesus who's right there. They hear all of this and they ask Jesus to leave. They asked him to leave them because they were gripped by great fear. And so getting in the boat, Jesus returned. As I was studying this passage, I just kept wondering, like, what were they so afraid of? It's obviously that, that part of that fear is directed to Jesus. Like, again, great power. And when you're in the presence of great power, you're automatically fearful a little bit. So obviously there's kind of a respect for Jesus' power. They believe that he really did this, and so they're scared of him. But that seems to not be all, right? There's something about what they're scared of that's causing them to say, well, we don't want you, Jesus. Go away from us. And what came to my mind is just the fact that what had just happened, all these pigs had just ran down the bank, drowned in the, the lake. 
I wonder if part of it is them realizing and knowing that if we were to keep this rabbi here and learn from him, what else are we going to lose? I think it might be related to fear of loss. Right? They understand Jesus' great power, but here's what they're missing out. Jesus' great goodness. That if he does ask them to give up something, that it would actually be for their good. But they don't get that. They're just scared of what else they might lose. And so again, the point in this story and all these stories is that not only that Jesus does have authority over storms and seas and the spiritual realm and sickness and even death in the story we're going to look at, it's not simply that he has that authority. It's look at how he exercises that authority. Look at how he uses that power. How he puts all of his great power to work shows that at his heart, he's loving and good. And so if there's any part of you or your heart today, and you're like, I'm, I love Jesus, or I want to know more about Jesus, but I'm scared of what that might cost, what I might lose. I just want to encourage you that, yes, there will be things to lose, but that it's not God keeping something good from you. It's God wanting what's best for you. And that those things you're scared you might lose out on, they are not really life, and they're not really good for you. It's possible to have an unhealthy fear. That's what they had. They understood his power, but it caused them to step away from Jesus instead of trust him more. The man from whom the demons had departed begged Jesus earnestly to be with him. But Jesus sent him away and said, go back to your home and tell all that God has done for you. And off he went, proclaiming throughout the town how much Jesus had done for him. To application for us, this bottom bullet point. Jesus has not only great power, but he has great authority as well. It's not that just that he's like this, this powerful thing like a storm. He's a person, and he has the authority to do things. And again, do you trust him more than you fear loss? Again, healthy fear of God is a key component of a healthy faith in God, but it has to be a healthy fear of God, a respect not just for his power, but for his goodness. And that is made most clear, I think, in this last story of Jesus healing two women. And interesting, both of there's some similarities here you're going to pick up on. He calls both of these women daughters. Um, and one is a 12-year-old, and one has been sick for 12 years. And so they're kind of put together uh, in this story. So when Jesus returned, right, the people said, go away. So now he went back across the Sea of Galilee to the Jewish side. So when Jesus returned... The crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Just then a man named Jairus came. He was a leader of the synagogue. He fell down at Jesus' feet and pleaded with him to come to his house because he had an only daughter, about 12 years old, and she was dying. He's desperate, and he believes Jesus can help. While Jesus was going to help him, the crowds were nearly crushing him. A woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years who had spent all she had on doctors and yet could not be healed by any, approached from behind and touched the end of his robe, and instantly her bleeding stopped. Now, one of the things we might miss out on is that um, 
part of the aspect of this healing of this woman with the, the discharge of blood is, is not just the physical healing. That's a huge part of it. But it's also that, again, in Jewish culture, if you're unclean, you can't be part of the gathered assembly. And bleeding disqualifies you from that. It makes you unclean, ceremonially unclean. And so she would have been excluded from a lot of gatherings and any religious gathering whatsoever. She could not have gone to synagogue. She wouldn't have been allowed. And she probably technically shouldn't be in this crowd of people. And she definitely shouldn't be touching a holy man, a rabbi like Jesus. And she's driven by her trust in his power and his goodness that he would want to heal her. And so she touches the fringe on his robe and immediately she's healed. And Jesus stops. And you just have to picture this, right? The crowd is nearly crushing him. And he's trying to get to this girl who's dying. And all of a sudden he stops. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, "Uh, Master, the crowds are hemming you in and pressing against you. Like, there's like 100 people who just touched you, right, is what he's saying, right? A bunch of people, Jesus. But Jesus said, someone did touch me. And it said, Jesus, I know that power has gone out from me. And the woman saw, when the woman saw that she was discovered, she came trembling. How is she feeling? Afraid. What's he going to do? Is he going to take away this healing? Is he going to be mad at me for touching him, a rabbi? She came trembling and fell down before Jesus. In the presence of all the people, she declared the reason why she had touched him and how she was instantly healed. What does Jesus say? Daughter, he said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I love that the translation actually says has saved you because that's... um, what, what it actually says. It's the same word for when she, uh, and how she was instantly healed. It's actually the word saved. She was instantly saved, and he says to her daughter, uh, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It's interesting because Jesus is not interested in only healing the physical affliction. Like we saw, there's also the social aspect of this affliction she's experiencing. By healing her, now she can be part of the community again. But also by calling her out and having this conversation in public, there's also a restoration between him and this woman. And that's tip, like the tip off is that he says, daughter. Not random woman, I don't know. Or even just woman, your faith has saved you, daughter. My daughter. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It's restored. While Jesus was still speaking to her, though, someone came from the synagogue leader's house and said, your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. What's going on in the background of this story is that Jairus and whoever the servant is of Jairus believe that when someone's died, it's past God's help. There's nothing he can do now. It's hopeless. It's useless, Jesus. You can't help now. It's too far gone. But when Jesus heard this, he said, don't be afraid, only believe, and she will be saved. Don't be afraid, only believe. Don't be afraid of death. Don't be afraid of what the sickness has taken or you think has happened. 
only believe, trust me and she will be saved. After Jesus came to the house, he let no one enter with him except Peter, John, and James and the child's father and mother. Everyone was crying and mourning for her, but he said, stop crying because she's not dead but asleep. What he seems to be suggesting is that the situation in which she's in is temporary. I'm going to revive her, wake her up. So one scholar says, Jesus' statement is not diagnosis. He's not saying she's actually sleeping and he's actually going to literally wake her. It's, it's prognosis. She's not going to stay in the state she is for long. I'm coming to wake her up. And the people there who are grieving for this girl laughed at him because they knew that she was dead. So he took her by the hand and called out, child, get up. Her spirit returned and she got up at once and they gave orders that she be given something to eat. Her parents were astounded, but he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. And it's interesting, this is a theme we've seen before where Jesus wants to keep certain things quiet until after his death and resurrection because there's so much confusion about what this might mean and people might be coming to him for the wrong reasons. Uh, one scholar I read suggested that maybe in this case he wanted to keep things quiet um, even for the sake of this girl. That maybe he didn't want this girl to be peppered by questions like for the next year. Like, did you really die? Did Jesus really raise you? What was like, right? Like, let this little girl be a little girl and not have all that pressure. Um, we don't know all the reasons. But he saves her. Don't be afraid, only believe. That's what Jesus says to Jairus. Don't be afraid, only believe. Healthy fear, right? Fearing the fear of God over the fear of other things is a key component of a healthy faith. And so as we close in a minute, I wanna encourage you to pray a simple prayer of God, show me your greatness and help me know your goodness. Show me your greatness and help me know your goodness. If you only have one of those, it doesn't work. If God is super powerful but not actually good, that's kind of scary, actually. And if he's really good but not actually all that powerful, that's not actually all that helpful, is it? I want good things for you. I cannot help you do them, but I want them for you. No, it's he's vastly powerful and good. Reminds me of uh, that, that famous scene in the Chronicles of Narnia at the end of the line, the witch in the wardrobe, where Lucy's talking about Aslan, Mr. Beaver, and she's like, you know, is he a, he's a safe lion though, right? Isn't he? He's a safe lion, right? And the lion, Aslan, symbolizes God. And he's like, no, who said anything about safe? But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. God is not necessarily safe. That trusting him may be dangerous to things you'd rather hold on to, but he wants to call you to let go of. He's not safe, but he is good. So again, show me your greatness and help me trust your goodness. So we're going to um, close with a song that celebrates the moment of salvation and kind of draws a parallel between that and Jesus raising us from the dead. It's something that happened to this girl in the story. It's something that happened to Jesus' friend, Lazarus. 
in John 11. And it's something that we believe will happen to all of us one day when Jesus returns. That when Jesus comes back, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised. Some to everlasting life and some to everlasting destruction. But the hope all of us have and put in is that this God is powerful. He can raise us. And he's good. He wants to raise us to life. That's who he is. And as we sing the song, I just love for you to consider and pray about how do you think of God? Maybe you have a deep fear of God, but not that trust of him. Like those people in that Gentile territory that said, go away. You're powerful, but I don't know if I trust you. Maybe you just want to pray, God, help me, help me trust that you really are good. Or maybe like me on that retreat, you trust God's goodness, um, but maybe you need to be put in your place in a way where you've elevated yourself or your desires above him, and you might need to be reminded of how small we are and how great and vast and powerful he is. So uh, worship team, come on up and uh, close us in song, and um, this is your time to respond to not only sing this song, but to speak in your heart to God about what he's doing in you and how he would call you to change. So let me pray for this time of response together. And I just want to remind you, we will have a prayer team in the back corner. So if there's something specific you'd like prayer for, we'd love to pray for you. And again, any of us, I'd love to talk with you before you head out today. Let's pray together though. God, I thank you that you are both powerful and good. Help us to fear you in the right way, Jesus. Help us to have a healthy trust in you that's driven by a healthy understanding of you, a a deep reverence and awe and respect for your vast power. Open our eyes to see how great you are and how good you are. And for each of us here today, wherever we are with you, would you use this time now? Would you help us just to open our hearts to you in the next few minutes? Open our minds to you. And whatever it is you're calling us to do in response, would you give us the courage to do that? The faithfulness to do that. Even if it means laying aside some things that are difficult to lay aside or changing the way we think about you or pray to you. We ask all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.